This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, December 17th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Mountain Village hires new town manager, county considers EV transition, Telluride seeks more data on tourism, and a mountain weather forecast. Paul Weiser is stepping in as Mountain Village's new town manager. The opportunity to work within this region and for the town of Mountain Village has been one of the most fortunate experiences of my life. And I feel truly blessed to have had that opportunity and to be able to work with the staff and the council that are currently in place within the town of Mountain Village is truly, in my opinion, a unique opportunity. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I'm able to now have it that opportunity to be a full-time reality for me. Weiser was previously Mountain Village's town attorney and has been serving as interim town manager for several months after Kim Montgomery stepped down from the position. Unsurprisingly, Weiser says tackling the regional housing crisis is and will be one of his top priorities. Everyone is well aware that not only Mountain Village, Telluride region, but mountain communities throughout Colorado are experiencing a housing crisis at the moment. And given the unique aspects of Mountain Village, both in terms of financial resources, uh, land, which and sometimes we think that we don't have a whole lot of, but compared to other communities, we still do, and uh, a, com- a commitment from our council to address the issue, it's really been wonderful to dig in and figure out what some of those solutions are. There's not one way that our community is going to figure out how to solve this problem, uh, nor any other community. And so it's going to take a variety of different approaches and being able to come in every day and work with our amazing staff and figuring out what those different approaches are and how they can specifically apply to Mountain Village has been really, really rewarding. But he also sees his job as not only implementing local policy, but communicating that to the community. Being able to manage expectations and explaining why the town is doing what it is doing on a day-to-day basis or on a long-term basis is going to be a consistent challenge. And that's not unique to Mountain Village again, but I think that that would be the one issue that is always going to have me on my toes is making sure that the public is bought into what we're doing. As town manager, Weiser will be one of the consistent leaders of government, opposed to elected council members who rotate through on an election cycle. In that role, he says he wants to help newly elected members transition into local government. We have, obviously, in Mountain Village, a wide range of people who have a wide range of experiences, usually very successful. And to raise your hand and say, I want to run for council is a great thing. We're greatly appreciative for everyone who does that. But there's a difference between running a company, which I think a lot of people are used to doing, uh, who end up on our council, and working with a group of six people and the staff within the structure of a local government and realizing that running a business and running a government are two different things. And that's not to say that if you're good at one, you can't be good at the other, but there is a learning curve that has to be dealt with at some point. I think for a town manager, one of their crucial jobs, especially for those new council members, is to really get them up to speed and you be able to utilize the tools that those council members have to most effectively run the, run the town. Prior to taking the position as town manager, Weiser worked for the law firm Garfield & Hecht. The firm contracted with Mountain Village for the town attorney position. Weiser says he loved working for the firm, but is excited to move full-time into policymaking on the local level. My partners were very surprised when I broached this with them. But uh, I think to my 
somewhat surprise, but also great pleasure. They were incredibly supportive and basically said, look, if you change your mind in six weeks, six months, or six years, you're always welcome back here. He notes he has no plan to leave Mountain Village anytime soon. I think for some of those attorneys who, since they were two years old, have always wanted to be an attorney and live and die by uh, each day that they get to draft a document, they couldn't quite wrap their heads around why I would want to make this change. And for me, again, I think that Mountain Village and the Telluride region are such a unique place and the opportunity to transition into more of a policymaking role and an implementation role was truly something that... um, most people don't have the opportunity to do that. And when it was presented to me, some of those other things that came along with being a partner at Garfield and the Hecht um, were superseded by the opportunity to be here. Weiser was raised in Denver and has lived and worked in the Val area for a number of years. He is currently living in Mountain Village. His family intends to make the move once they find housing. Weiser has worked for the town of Mountain Village since 2020. He is stepping into the town manager position effective immediately. When it comes to making the switch from gas-powered to electric vehicles, there's a lot of considerations. Price, for one, but also how often you'll be able to charge an EV. There are several charging stations in Telluride and Mountain Village. San Miguel County is looking into potentially adding more throughout the region. It's really to streamline the conversion process of the county's vehicles to EVs and also to be able to provide affordable and subsidized charging rates to those vehicles. Another Obvious goal is to provide more EV charging opportunities to the public. That's Seamus Croak, COVID-19 Recovery Funding Coordinator for the county, discussing a grant opportunity to support EV charger installation with the Board of County Commissioners this week. When it comes to public use, Croak notes it would likely be visitors and people passing through who would use those chargers. Many locals who have EVs will probably tend to charge at home at night. Croak notes several potential locations for county EV chargers. One could be the Ilium Sheriff's Office, but he adds that's not ideal for public use. It's not a location where people would want to park and and walk around as much as somewhere like Telluride. So if Telluride has charging stations, they would likely go into town and get a pizza and charge there as opposed to stopping in Ilium. So it really, if we were going to get this opportunity, it'd probably be important to get a lot of county EVs to offset the cost to make that cost worth it. Another spot could be the Down Valley Park in Placerville. That would be probably a better location considering people would want to stop and charge and be able to enjoy the park. Another option would be in Placerville itself. And then there's potentially the Norwood Sheriff's Annex. We still are kind of unsure of what the current demand is in that area as well. And that's one thing we'll be looking into. When it comes to the possibility of transitioning the county vehicles to EVs, County Natural Resources and Special Projects Director Star Jameson notes a lot of electric SUV and truck models aren't out until next year. And a lot of the 2022 models are spoken for. Then we're looking forward to 2023. The wait isn't a huge issue for Commissioner Lance Waring. He notes first-generation vehicle purchases may not be the best idea. Makes sense for us to start planning for the future, but not to press for changing out our vehicles immediately. Commissioner Hillary Cooper counters that may be true for heavier-duty operational EVs, but not for passenger vehicles, which have had electric versions for a while. I would like for us to see that conversion happen potentially with the next purchase 
uh, next timely purchase of um, all of our passenger vehicles. Waring agrees with that distinction. Commissioner Chris Holstrom stresses installing EV chargers should be a coordinated effort between the local governments to find and fill gaps in the region. The one that does jump out, I think, is the one is the lack of one in the Norwood. The commissioners want further analysis to guide whether and how the county should expand regional EV infrastructure. But one way or another, if more electric cars hit the roads, more chargers will have to pop up somewhere, somehow. 2021, at least compared to recent years, was a time of ups and downs for tourism in and around Telluride. That's according to data from the Telluride Tourism Board. TTB President and CEO Michael Mardelon briefed Telluride Town Council on the last year in tourism at a meeting this week. Daily rates for lodging were up by double, or in some cases even triple digits across the board for Telluride and Mountain Village, compared to 2019 and 2020. It's almost irony, but this is uh, part of what the pandemic did to our destination because, it, you know, the outdoors went viral and then we restricted occupancy, which drove rate, and they just didn't bring the rate. The, right, the rate hasn't come back down again. Or for that matter, it's going up. Occupancy, however, was more in the other direction, with Telluride down by 5% compared to 2020 and about 13% compared to 2019. One of the biggest decreases was during fall off-season, with Telluride occupancy down over 50% compared to 2020. Still, at least when it comes to public funds, Mardelon notes the higher lodging prices counteract some of that decline. Fewer lodgers, but each lodger is paying more. I don't worry about being down in occupancy in terms of affecting the town taxes because the rate will end up balancing it out. But there is a big but. Mardlon explains the data the Tourism Board has does not include self-managed properties. That missing data, about 190 properties, he says, could be enough to flip some of the 2021 trends. That makes sense to several members of council who note Telluride felt plenty busy this past year. Here's council member Geneva Shawnette. I don't think anybody can look at, you know, fall off-season occupancy numbers and really believe that we're down 55% from 2020. Some people also come to town but don't stay in lodging, like day trippers. Data from credit cards and cell phones can track those numbers and show throughout this past summer, visitor numbers were mostly at or below 2020 numbers with higher numbers at the start and end of the summer. Mardlon explains those visitors contribute to the on-the-ground feel of town. The aim, he says, is to mitigate that. It's kind of like you're at a house party and everyone's in the kitchen and we want them to be in the front yard and the backyard and the living room. And we kind of need to talk about the best way to do that. But it's hard to manage that with incomplete data. Council unanimously agreed to have a future discussion about getting data from self-managed properties to have a more full picture of regional lodging and the season-to-season and year-to-year ups and downs. Nothing's fun like family fun. This week, Tri-County Health Network will host a full day of activities in Norwood to celebrate the community's health. 
The Norwood School will host a bouncy house and jelly ball games from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. There will be free food and a walk-in COVID vaccine clinic at the Lone Cone Library from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. The library will also host the movie Santa's Apprentice from 6.30 to 9 p.m. The Family Fun Day will take place in Norwood on Saturday, December 18th from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Looking for some family-friendly holiday cheer? Over the next two weeks, the Wilkinson Public Library will host two matinee movies fit for the kids. This Monday, December 20th, Will Ferrell will grace the big screen in Elf, the classic tale of a human baby raised as an elf who sets out on a journey to find his real parents and even the world's best cup of coffee. On Monday, December 27th, Elsa and Anna and even Olaf return in Frozen 2 on a journey to enchanted forests and dark seas beyond their kingdom of Arendelle. Both Monday matinee movies will be at 2 p.m. at the Wilkinson Public Library's program room. Popcorn will be provided. Economists at the state capitol say Colorado's financial recovery continues to beat expectations despite uncertainty caused by the Omicron variant. But as KOTO Scott Franz reports, the latest forecast is a mixed bag for state lawmakers. Revenue projections have jumped more than $500 million since the last forecast three months ago. But economists are warning state lawmakers they probably cannot spend that windfall because a lot of it will have to be refunded to tax taxpayers, thanks to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR. It's a law passed in 1992 limiting how much tax revenue the government can collect and spend. So even though the economy is recovering faster than expected, the state government is projected to hit a revenue cap. Meanwhile, financial experts say the pandemic, supply chain problems, and the end of federal stimulus funds are the biggest risks to the economy in the short term. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. Discussions on the future of the Colorado River have wrapped up in Las Vegas, and the theme of the River Conference was urgency. With the water supply for 40 million people on the line, scientists and policymakers laid out all the ways in which a steady, drying river threatens life in the West. Some states did agree to a new deal that will keep more water in Lake Mead. Water agencies from three western states and the federal government signed the deal to leave extra water in the reservoir that supplies water to millions in the southwest. It's an effort to stop the lake from dropping below critically low water levels as drought pushes supplies past already historic lows. Signers said it was a sign of collaboration. Adele Hodge-Khalil manages the Metropolitan Water District in Southern California. We're not going to abandon the Colorado River. We're not going to turn our backs to it. We're not going to turn against each other. California, Arizona, Nevada, and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation are pooling more than $100 million to incentivize reductions. The measure is seen as a way to encourage voluntary cutbacks before mandatory restrictions are triggered. Experts say it's a stopgap measure and only a small fix in the face of the region's steadily shrinking water supply. And leaders, including Assistant Interior Secretary Tanya Trujillo, acknowledged the region needs more substantial changes. In addition to the short-term emergency decisions we will be making, we also need to be very real about the challenge of building long-term solutions in this basin. 
Water managers are under pressure to come up with new guidelines for how to share the river before the current set of rules expires in 2026. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Our first story comes from Wyoming. Construction started in south-central Wyoming back in 2016 on what will be the country's largest wind farm. The project is unusual because of its size and also because it's located on federal land. But a federal agency is also stalling a key aspect of its development. Kyle Mackey of KHOL Jackson reports. Jason Thiesfeld is driving a white pickup truck over a network of newly built dirt roads winding through sagebrush and native grasses. The landscape is almost a textbook definition of the wide open spaces Wyoming is famous for. Think about it, I mean, last year there was not a road through here. It was almost, you'd almost have to ride a horse and to get across this country. And I just passed my turn. See, there's so many new roads, I can't even remember where I'm going. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, and now it's just this nice... Thiesfeld is site coordinator of the Choke Cherry and Sierra Madre Wind Energy Project for the Power Company of Wyoming. He's been working yeah, on the 320,000-acre project site near Rollins for almost 15 years, even before construction started. That's because this project required more environmental analysis than your average wind farm. We know everything about the site. The wind, the vegetation, the habitat, the wildlife, where things live, where things move where the wind blows. (laughs) It's a huge science project, really. Kara Choquette is the company's communications director. She says the Chokecherry and Sierra Madre project is probably one of the most scrutinized wind farms in the country because of its location on Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, land. It's just a a fact that when you are doing energy projects on federal land, there's more environmental review, more environmental scrutiny, therefore more time, more costs. And that's just how it is. (laughs) We're probably 97 to 98% located on private lands across the country. And that can't remain the same. Tom Darren is senior director of Western State Affairs for the American Clean Power Association, the largest wind trade association in North America. We need to tap in to the great uh, wind and solar resources that are on our public lands in the Western United States. That's because Congress set an ambitious goal last year of permitting 25 gigawatts of renewable energy projects on public lands by 2025. The current capacity of permitted projects is about 12 gigawatts, according to the BLM. The Chokecherry and Sierra Madre site will generate at least 3,000 megawatts of clean electricity once it's completed. But another federal agency is standing in the way of how that electricity will reach customers via the planned TransWest Express transmission line. I guess it's um, disappointing that there is there, there was so much collaboration to develop the route for the project. The TransWest project was designated a rapid response team federal priority transmission project by the Obama administration 10 years ago. And the last mile and the last obstacle is a federal agency. The LA Times reported in August that the last private landowner blocking the construction path for TransWest is Cross Mountain Ranch in northwest Colorado. 
The family is backed by the Natural Resources Conservation Service, part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Basically, the BLM approved a path for TransWest across part of the ranch in 2013. But then in 2014, the NRCS approved conservation easements in the same area that specifically prohibited the construction of transmission lines. In this area, there is no conflict except the one that the NRCS created. The TransWest project would cross the conservation easement on land that is not great sage-grouse habitat. So it's a 16,000-acre conservation easement. The project needs 30 acres alongside a state highway. Choquette says the company had no choice but to file a lawsuit against the USDA in 2019. That's still playing out, but she's hoping for a decision soon, and preferably long before the first of about 900 wind turbines start going up on the site in 2025 or 2026. For KHOL and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Kyle Mackey. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 5 degrees. Saturday should be sunny with a high around freezing. Saturday night should be clear with a low around 10 degrees. Sunday expect sunny skies during the day and clear skies at night with a high in the mid-30s and a low around 20. This has been the news for Friday, December 17th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.